This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. While growing up has never been easy, today's world presents kids and their parents with unprecedented challenges. The upside, according to my guest Maureen Healy, is a widespread acknowledgement that emotional health, resilience, and equilibrium can be learned and strengthened. Healy is an expert on teaching skills that address the high sensitivity, big emotions, and hyper-energy she herself experienced growing up. Three simple steps are key, she says. Stop, calm, and make smarter choices. While not always easy, these steps are powerful, and Healy is going to show us how exactly to implement them. Kids can move from acting out or shutting down, experiencing frequent physical symptoms such as head and stomach aches, or hurting themselves or others, to recognizing that they're being triggered, feeling their emotions, and using mindfulness strategies to respond from a calmer place. Everyone's emotional health comes in and out of balance, and Healy's goal and our goal in this show is to help kids, if they hit a snag in life, to give them the tools and awareness to emerge stronger, healthier, and more whole. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start talking about how to raise an emotionally healthy child when Positive Parenting continues right after this. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her Mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Maureen Healy, who's the author of The Emotionally Healthy Child, Helping Children Calm, Center, and Make Smarter Choices. Maureen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So why is it that kids are not naturally doing these things? It seems like getting calm and centered and making smarter choices is, is the, the goal of, of every parent. I would just say that we all sort of start out reactive. You know, when we're young, if we're upset, we cry. or we And, and learning how to keep our emotions in check and, and calm and make those smarter choices is a skill to learn. I would just even... Uh, explain it like, you know, building muscles, you go to the gym to lift weights. So same kind of thing with emotional health. It's a skill to learn. And it's a skill you think that we're not necessarily born with. I would say some people are inherently more emotionally intelligent than others naturally. But I would say across the board, it's, you know, we still need to learn how to handle anger that's fast moving or different emotions that have sort of subtlety and nuances and especially as children you know they have limited experience so sometimes they don't they don't know what they don't know which is normal right is the emotional intelligence that you're talking about i think most people when you think of emotional intelligence it's 
it's understanding emotions in others, but not necessarily in yourself. Are, are you? Do you think that they're separate things or they're related? That somebody could be empathetic think, without being terribly empathetic to himself or herself? Oh, of course. Absolutely. I mean, I think the first step is really always learning about emotions in our own bodies and how we experience them and, and learning how to express them constructively. But in that process, during we develop, you know, as we develop, seeing those emotions in the other and recognizing how they work helps us. So, but it is possible to have a very strong inner critic or not be compassionate with yourself for sure. And that could influence your ability to recognize your own emotions, I guess. Absolutely. So is there something different about children today that these that this particular skill is harder to come by, or is it something that's always been there, we just haven't noticed it as much? I would say that, you know, we have a more of a contrast today, meaning this is a skill that we've always, as children, needed to learn and develop. And that, you know, 30, 40 years ago, a good parent was someone who had, you know, the roof over the head and the food on the table, which still is the case. But now we're really concerned about the inner life of children. And children these days, you know, they have a complex emotional landscape with the number one fear being school shootings. And they're still bullying very prevalent and lots of things that weren't worries before. And especially with screens and different things that sort of add complexity to emotional health. And how are they dealing with it overall? Well, it's a case-by-case basis. I mean, I guess the reason why I wrote the book, Emotionally Healthy Child, was because I kept seeing more and more kids coming into my office who didn't know how emotions worked and how to express them constructively. So since I had those ideas and tools and strategies used working with children for many, many years, I thought, okay, if I could put everything parents and teachers need to know in one book to help them, I would do it. So it's not (laughs) complex stuff, but it's that kind of thing that when you know it and you explain it in a way that lands in a child's mind and they get that aha, things can go smoother. Okay. So how do we start? What's I I guess the first part is going to have to be to to help kids recognize what's really going on with them instead of just reacting to everything. Right. Yeah. How they identify emotions in their bodies. And, of course, we want to catch emotions when they're small, so like irritation and frustration versus epic-sized anger. So I have tools to help with that. And then the idea is that when you catch an emotion, whether it's a helpful or challenging one, you want to calm because not a lot of good decisions are made made when you're not calm. So you want to help them come back to center, come back to balance, and then make a smarter choice, which I define as a choice good for you and good for someone else. So a child who's angry in the classroom can throw his notebook. It's good for him. He gets anger relief. But the kid who's hit with the notebook, not good for him. So we want to make choices that are good for – help them make choices that are good for them and good for others. Okay. So give us an an example of a a situation and a tool that a child might use and how something might play out differently because of the tool. Sure. So one tool that I love is the idea of a smart choices checklist. So oftentimes when kids come into my office and I work with them, they simply don't realize they had other choices. So for that scenario that I explained with the child who threw the, threw the notebook, you know, he was so frustrated and angry, he, it didn't occur to him that he could calm and stop and then do something else. 
So working with him, I helped him. Okay, what what are the, some other choices? What are some things you could have done different in that moment? You could have talked to the teacher and allowing the child to come up with them. You know, I could have gone to the bathroom, left water on my face. I could have uh, started listening to my favorite music because they allow it in his classroom. So coming up with choices that work for him and then creating a list of your smart choices at home and smart choices at school so that when you begin to get some bigger emotions, you could just pick one of the things you can do to release it constructively. So helping a child recognize that, A, they're bigger than their emotion, even though in that moment he, the anger felt bigger than him, helping him realize that, oh, no, it's not true. I'm bigger than that emotion, and I actually can make a different choice. That is helpful. And what age are you starting this, this technique? Typically, yeah, typically four and up. Because just from a brain development standpoint, before four, logic doesn't, it's not always online. So um, in general, four and up is a time when children can really get it and make those better choices. They can learn how to do it. Um, although I, I know from early on, you know, you're, the way that we interact as parents and teachers and professionals, children will pick up on that. So the ideas are important to start thinking about and modeling early on, but I would say a child four and up can really uh, use these strategies. Okay. Uh, you talk about some strategies in the book, things like volcano and to, um, to be aware of what's going on and anger buttons and giving your anger a name. Uh -huh. Talk about some of those a little bit and how, how they can help. Sure. I like the anger name because it helps a child realize that they're not their anger. Um, so an example, I'm just going to use me because I know anger in my body, but I always joke around, you know, monster mo, because when I'm in the car, you know, and stuck in traffic, that's when I get frustrated. So, you know, we all have those moments where you, you feel that frustration rise, and, of course, children as well. So giving your anger a name helps you recognize that it's separate from you. You are not the anger. It is something separate. It's going to come and go. It's going to be a temporary emotion. So making that distance is helpful. So your child can be, you know, you know angry at him or whatever name they come up with. But when you see it, you say, oh, angry at him, and then you recognize it's something a little bit removed from you that's going to come and go. So that's important. So that sort of leads me to the idea in the book, The Emotionally Healthy Child, I, I list how emotions work. So when children get some of those ideas of how they work, it's helpful to them because then they can, they can understand their proper place in regard to the emotion, that they do have more control. They can make better choices. They aren't what they feel. You know, those are all good ahas to have. So we're talking about young kids and they're not going to be able to write this stuff down in their notebooks or anything like that. So how, it seems like a lot to keep track of. Well, I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, this that's the whole point of emotional health. It's a lifelong endeavor. It's not like a box that we check. We know as adults we're still learning, whether it's sadness or disappointment or jealousy or frustration. You know, there's, oh, and hopefully we're learning joy and gratitude and optimism. But you know, I think it's planting those seeds early on that help children learn how to deal with whether it's frustration or sadness or feeling left out or jealousy, that they can continue to deepen their experiences and build on how to handle these big emotions because we want them to go from reactive to more responsive, to more from careless to more careful choices. And we want them, of course, to have fun in the process, 
but we don't want them to be rigid. We want them to be more flexible in, um, in the way that they handle life. Because we all have had that moment where, you know, oh, we got to stop for FedEx. And the child says, no, I will not. I don't want to stop. And there's a meltdown. So we want to help them become, learn how to bring themselves back to balance when things change as well. Talking with Maureen Healy, who's the author of The Emotionally Healthy Child, Helping Children Calm, Center, and Make Smarter Choices. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get into these details in, uh, in a little bit more detail, get into these ideas, and we'll keep talking to Maureen. I'm Armin Brunt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. This is how we do every day. We be grinding, and if you want to come and If you love them enough to turn off your music... And pretend like their music is your music. Ah, this is mommy's jam. Then surely you'll check NHTSA.gov slash the right seat to make sure they're in the right car seat. Let's play it again. Check today at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Act Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Maureen Healy, the author of The Emotionally Healthy Child, Helping Children Calm, Center, and Make Smarter Choices. So once they're doing this, I mean, obviously, as you said, it's it's not a, a one-shot thing. It's a lifelong skill, and it's going to continually change and evolve. Uh, how do you how do you get kids to to allow this process to happen? Because, I mean, so many, I mean, plenty of adults, too. You, you, we don't want to get involved in some sort of a lifelong endeavor. We want we want to take a pill and fix it now. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the thing is that, you know, we all want to feel happy. We just go about in different ways. And, you know, as kids, you think, oh, that'll make me happy, the video game or whatever temporary thing. But, you know, we do really want to feel good consistently and helping create that self-awareness is important. I mean, I certainly wouldn't tell a child, oh, we're going to work on emotions and we're going to work on it forever. That doesn't sound fun, but I would help them say, hey, we all want to feel good and doing X, Y, Z might help. And I'm a big fan of mindfulness, you know, whether learning how to pay attention, you know, without judgment. So doing it in fun ways, you can wash the car mindfully, you can do whatever it is, but helping them begin to develop that self-awareness because they can turn that towards their emotions. Can you explain that in a little bit more detail? Because I think that's something that we talk about mindfulness a lot on the show, and it it comes up, and there have been a lot of books recently about mindfulness for kids, and and the idea of observing without judgment is, sounds easy, but I don't think it is so terribly easy, and especially not for kids. I mean, adults can more um, maybe it maybe it is easier for kids, but it seems like adults have got the capacity to will away distraction and and wrench themselves back to non judgment. But kids may find it harder to do. How do you help get that skill into a child? Yeah, that's a really good question, and 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 I think you know it, it sort of ties in with the book, the emotionally healthy child and the beginning part where I talk about how emotions work because there are no good or bad emotions. So being able to, I, you know, really observe what's happening without a judgment. So paying attention without saying, Oh, I feel angry and that's bad. It's not bad. It just is. So helping kids learn how to 
spot their feelings without putting anything added onto that is important. Um, I do have a lot of mindfulness activities in the book, which are, you know, mindful seeing, mindful listening, mindful breathing, all different mindful touch. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea, the idea is to help them slow down. So when I would think of mindlessness, that's, you know, speeding really fast, wanting to finish your homework as fast as you can. But mindfulness is doing it deliberately, slowing down and paying attention so you can make better choices. And, you know, you could even do an activity in your home. Okay, you, you know, you get another scoop of ice cream, whoever can set the table to slow it. We want them to help slow them down so that they can not only identify their emotions, but, you know, do things more carefully and have fun as well. But, you know, when the slower we are, the more we can create more self-awareness. We can become more aware of how we're feeling, how others are feeling, the choices we make, the impact they have. And there's a lot of different, you know, activities. I like to think of mindfulness not as the word mindfulness, because that's sort of a buzzword that people hear and they think, oh, it's religious or something else, which it's not. It just means teaching kids to learn how to pay attention. And we know as a kid, you move really quickly. You run really fast. You want to get your homework done as fast as you can so you can go play. So, But but there is value and benefit to slowing them down, I guess is what I would say, mm-hmm. and especially regarding emotions and making better choices. Right. So from the perspective of, of a parent trying to tell this to a child, how would you explain something like that? you got a kid who's, who's fidgety, who's jumping around all over the place, who wants to get out of there and finish up. How do you start the, the conversation? Well, I might not even go at it directly, to be honest with you. I might say, let's do an activity. Let's go for a mindful walk in nature. And let's, you know, if this is a child with lots of activity, they have have lots of energy, they need to get their energy out. Um, And I would go for an activity and say, let's, you know, slow down and pay attention. Let's, you know, you could capture it on the phone. You could write it in your notebook. Let's take a picture or look at every animal or insect or bug, everything that we see so that they can begin to slow down and begin to pay attention. So I would do it in a fun way to begin with. So it doesn't seem like a chore, but eventually as a child learns how to pay attention more, they can turn it towards their emotions and their body and the choices they're making. Um, So I would start in a creative way, to be honest with you. Okay. And give us, from your experience, a, a difficult situation that you've seen a child in or a common situation that a lot of parents would would have to deal with. And let's let's go through the whole process about the the calming, centering, and making smarter choices, and what what the difference is in particular between calming and centering. Yeah. I mean, I would say that an emotion, just because the emotion of anger is so quick to come in, you know, kids go from not angry to angry within seconds. So that's a very common emotion that parents come to me with saying, hey, my kid's got anger management problems. He kicked a hole in the wall. What can we do about this? So it's it's really working with that child, you know, after an event or situation and then saying, hey, could we have done something differently? You know, helping sort of expand his or her awareness so that they say, okay, I perhaps could have done it differently. And how do you calm, you know, find using a tool that works with that child, which is why I have so many tools in the book, because kids are different. But say deep breathing works. Say there was a deep breathing technique. We use that technique of calming. He could use it on his own in the classroom when he's nervous during before a test. He can use it 
before he goes to bed to feel more calm, Mm -hmm. but using a tool to calm and then center is coming back to that place within yourself that is calm, finding that place and then making a better choice. Your next time when he was really angry saying, okay, go on the trampoline for 10 minutes. That's where the smart choices checklist comes in. You know, what are the choices that you can do instead of hitting, making a hole in the wall or kicking a hole in the wall? Okay. So, so what besides it, besides breathing, what's another technique that that a child could use? Um, all sorts of techniques. I mean, and it, it's sort of child dependent. So you know, some kids are more physical, right? You know, if we're talking about an issue at a home and a child has anger, you know, one family that I work with put in a punching punching bag downstairs, so the kid could go downstairs and just get that anger out. Another child listens to music on their headset. Another child, you know, can can do something else. It's always about getting a constructive versus destructive outlet. So you don't want to, what I would say, the emotionally unhealthy child is really hiding their emotions, suppressing them, ignoring them. The healthier child is learning, you know, ways to release emotions that are good for them and good for others. And then maybe writing in a journal. So it's coming up with things, and of course they'll change as a child, you know, grows and changes. But having things that work for them is really helpful. And is part of the part of the whole idea to explain to the kids or to give them the understanding that, you know, today the breathing might not work for you. So you got to have a, a plan B or a plan C. Yeah, I would say that you would have a few tools in the toolkit at any point where a child can use one and that they can say, okay, right now, you know, the deep, I'm not feeling the deep breathing, but I can go read my favorite book or I can close my eyes or I can talk to my friend. You know, getting something to release what's happening is important. And have you tried a lot of these things in classrooms and and gotten feedback from teachers and educators and and kids themselves? Absolutely. I've used these for years, one-on-one, but also in classrooms. And the classrooms are super helpful. You know, when you come back from recess, you know, every child is running in a different direction. You use one of the breathing techniques to get just everyone to calm and center and get back on the same page so we can actually do academics, you know. So it is really important. And where can people find out more information besides the book? Are you, do you do some blogging or a website some people can read more about you? Sure. My website is growinghappykids.com, but I do blog also at Psychology Today and, and Kids in the House and other places. But, yeah, growinghappykids.com and also highlysensitivekids.com. Talking with Maureen Healy, who's the author of The Emotionally Healthy Child, Helping Children Calm, Center, and Make Smarter Choices. And she's also the author of, as she said, The Growing Happy Kids, a different book. Maureen, thank you very much for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork. Yeah, I can do this. You go, Karen. By simply understanding and updating what her insurance covers and doesn't cover now, she'll be better prepared no matter when disaster strikes. Learn other simple ways to protect your home and family before a natural disaster at ready.gov. That's ready.gov. A message from FEMA and the Ad Council.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, I'm a new dad, and I've been reading to my baby, but I've started to notice that most of the parents in children's books are moms. There are some books where dad is the main parent, but most of the time, we're not there at all. My wife says that the media is just reflecting reality. I disagree. What do you think? First things first, it's fantastic that you're reading to your baby. It's great for both of you. Now, to your question. I'll admit that I'm a little biased in this area, since the portrayal of fathers in children's literature was the topic of an essay, which appeared in Newsweek more than 20 years ago, and helped launch my career writing about fatherhood. In that essay, which I called Not All Men Are Sly Foxes, I made the same point that you are, that fathers are largely absent in children's literature, and that when they're there, they're more often than not on the periphery or are portrayed as less competent than mom. While there has been some improvement, it hasn't been nearly enough. One could argue, as your wife does, that the images of men and women in children's literature are simply reflecting the reality that women tend to do more childcare than men. But if children's literature only reflected reality, why aren't 50% of the families divorced? Why aren't 15 to 20% of the single parents in these books fathers? Why, for that matter, aren't teen mothers or smokers or alcoholics and drug abusers adequately represented? The answer is that literature doesn't always reflect reality. In fact, I think that it does quite the opposite, reflecting a kind of reality that doesn't exist, the world the way we'd like it to be, rather than the way that it actually is. Books by Richard Scarry and many other authors routinely show both male and female police officers and firefighters. Does that reflect reality? Hardly. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, about 4% of firefighters and 14% of police officers are female. But that hasn't prevented us from all but banishing the words firemen and policemen from the English language. Far more than 4% of all the nurturing parents are men, and there are a lot more actively involved, nurturing, loving dads out there than there are female police officers. Still, images of nurturing fathers are rare. There's little question that reading about female firefighters and police officers, as well as construction workers, farmers, military service members, and other professions where women are a small minority, boosts girls' self-esteem and reinforces in their minds, and everyone else's for that matter, the idea that women have lives beyond the home and that there's nothing that girls and women can't do. Little boys, on the other hand, are given far more restricted lists of life's options. They can do anything they want as long as they financially support their families and leave the nurturing to the nearest female. Thanks to the majority of children's books, our kids, both boys and girls, grow up seeing motherhood as something valuable and noble and seeing mothers as people to love and respect, and, in the cases of girls, to become. Those same books show fatherhood as being much less important and fathers as less capable and less worthy of love and respect, and, in the case of boys, not anything to aspire to be. So the bottom line is that you're right, but you can change things for the better. If you look hard, you'll find more books with positive portrayals of dads. In the meantime, make up some stories of your own. Have you got a comment or a suggestion or a reaction to one of our segments here at Positive Parenting? If so, please do send us an email through our website at mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. Until then, I'm Armin Brott. But there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome back to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armand Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Thanks for staying with us. For many of us who plan and picture having a family, the image that pops to mind is a pretty short-sighted one. Parenting a child. Sounds pretty simple. But starting at around ages 9 to 13 and ending sometime in the early mid-20s, they will have an increasingly abrasive adolescent to contend with one who is no longer just an amenable child to look after. There's so much to learn on both sides of the relationship that parenting an adolescent often seems like the blind leading the blind. Most of what parents know is limited to what they have known. The adolescent has never grown this way before. Reducing that ignorance can help, and that's exactly what we're going to be trying to do in this part of today's show. Whether you've started a family early or late, it can be really helpful to have some general expectations of the developmental changes that your adolescent's going to be going through, as well as just keeping in mind that parenting is a long-term slog, and adolescence is just the harder half of it. And according to my guest, that harder half is divided into four separate stages. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start jumping into exactly what those four stages are and how you can negotiate them when Positive Parenting continues right after this. 911, what is your emergency? My kid shot himself. All right, where's the wounds? 911, what's your emergency? Please help. My son shot his brother. 911, what is your emergency? 911, please state your emergency. Every day, eight kids and teens are unintentionally killed or injured by loaded and unlocked guns. Learn how to make your home safer at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and End Family Fire. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad, and my guest for this part of today's show is Carl Pickhart, who's the author of Who Stole My Child? Parenting Through the Four Stages of Adolescence. Carl, welcome back to the show. It's been a couple of years. 
Yeah, well, it's good to be back with you. I'm, I, I, I look forward to it. So how did you happen to divide adolescence into four stages? Well, I was just trying to make some kind of sense about the progression that seems to occur, you know, starting around 9 to 13, and doesn't seem to end up till around, I don't know, 18 to 23. And I was just wondering if there was a way to kind of order some of the observations in such a way that I could kind of stage it out so that I could say to parents, look, this is the kind of, these are the kinds of changes that you could expect during, in this case, I said four, roughly four stages of adolescence through early adolescence, which is the separation from childhood and mid-adolescence where they're forming a family of friends and late adolescence where they're acting more grown up and, and finally the last stage when they're stage four when they're stepping off more on their own. And I, 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 I believe that the pro- a lot of the problems I see that parents have with their adolescence is that they're caught off guard and by surprise and at that point they can are at risk of overreacting sometimes and thinking yeah. with their feelings. And so well, I, I think, was trying to give them a way to anticipate some of these things. I think the thing that catches most parents with adolescence off guard is probably the fact that adolescence doesn't necessarily begin in double digits. It it can be you know, it can begin a lot sooner. I think I think as a parent you you like the the young stages and you you know it's it's fun it's enjoyable they're generally problem free for for quite a while and you don't think you're going to get hit with the teen years until the teen years actually start chronologically right 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 yeah i think i a, a lot of times i think sometimes people think well you know it won't adolescence won't start till puberty you know the onset of sexual maturity ha. but in fact uh, that i think is is not always the beginning. It's actually, it begins, adolescence begins earlier and then puberty intensifies what's happening. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I see the, I see the changes generally starting between nine and 13 and it begins, you know, and it's the, for parents and for kids, it begins with loss and it's one loss for the parents and it's two losses for the kids and the, the parents lose their adoring and adorable little child. And that, wonderfully entrancing magical period that they've had and then the, the the kid loses twice because they have to growing up is giving up so they have to give up a lot of beloved childhood things to grow older <clears throat> and there's loss there and stuff they miss and then they have to give up the idealized and wonderful parents who are now more after them and in their way around freedom issues than before so it's uh, you know it's a it's it's a hard beginning i think for both Oh, absolutely, yeah. And is this something that has changed, do you think, over the years that adolescence is starting younger, or is it just a, a redefining things? Because it seems like uh, th- there are some, I, I guess th- there's no other way to put it than biological changes that are going on, even within our lifetimes, in human development, that, that puberty seems to be starting younger and adolescence seems to be lasting longer as you put it it's going right. into the going into the 20s and and right. if you look at the the population of parents or, or kids who are moving back home after college you could extend adolescence another four or five years and it's <laughs> right. what you know what's what's going on there is are, are there actual 
medical, I don't call it medical, but biological changes that are causing some of this, or is it all psychological? Well, that's interesting, and I'm not, I'm not a good person to answer that. I don't know about, does, you know, pe- people who, for example, who are studying the incidence of puberty could probably, you know, that might be something that they could actually record, you know, at what point does the, the signs of sexual maturity start emerging. Uh, I, I've had people tell me that they, you know, that they think it's now earlier than that used to be. Uh, what I look for is is more the the separation issues and the early disaffection issues and the the beginning of detachment for independence and the beginning of differentiation for individuality. And I think I can't imagine. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine it getting any younger than it does, but. Uh, you know, I, I would say late elementary, certainly by middle school, most kids are, are in the chute. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder if some of that is that, that we have higher expectations for kids. I mean, I, I look at my, my 15-year-old daughter's, just her homework. I mean, I went through this with my older kids, but there was a, a bit of a gap there. But she's learning things or when she was 12 and 13, learning things in school that I didn't deal with until a couple of years later at least. And yeah, I we, think, we seem to have accelerated the, the pace of childhood in a way. I mean, just what, what they're yeah. exposed to and what they're expected to know. Yeah, I think that's a really good statement because I think it's all, it's all part of the, the parent dilemma, I think. You know, you and I came up in, mostly in one world, the, the offline world, and we, now we have kids growing up in two worlds. And the online world... You know, has it hasn't? I don't think adolescence has changed, but it has definitely changed the context. I mean, it used to be in the in the old days. You know, our parents could say to us, you know, Carl, you know, I know you're interested in that, and we'll talk about that when you're a little older in a couple of years. That's gone. <laughs> now yeah. this kid is a click away from anything they want to know. Yeah. And I I can't help but believe that the access to essentially unlimited worldly information, you know, has not had some kind of accelerating effect on young people. Yeah, unfortunately, their ability to ferret out what is accurate information from what is inaccurate information has not developed along the same speed as their ability to find the information. Yeah, and that's one of the things parents have to, I mean, you you know, you, you don't just ask your kid, how was your... You know how was how was your day? You ask how was your offline day and how was your online day because yeah. you've got to be able to converse about both these things. And right. back to what you're saying, you have to. I mean, we. I think we as parents, we've got to, we, You know, we have three objectives around the online world. One is we want the kid to be competent because that's you know as educational and occupational value, and we want the kid to be safe because it's a dangerous world and we need to help the kid take precautions to take care of themselves, and we want the kid to be balanced so that they don't sacrifice um, offline capacities to, to online and, and you know, online escape. So we're trying yeah. to get some, we're trying to play for balance on this one, too. Well, so how do you parent a child who's in that first stage, that 8, 9, 10-year-old stage where they're beginning to separate? What, what are we looking for, and, and what do we do to help them and help ourselves? Well, I think one thing is is to be sensitive to the ambivalence they bring to the process, because if they give off, uh, children will give off a, a lot of double messages. You know, 
you know, treat me older, treat me younger, you know, let me do it. You never do anything for me. And the parents wonder, you know, which way does the kid want it? Well, they're caught between, you know, wanting to grow up and not wanting to give up. And so you have to be, you have to be sensitive to the awkwardness of that. Also, I think you have to expect that there's going to simply be more disorganization and more distractibility for a while because the old management system that was was okay for managing childhood is no longer sufficient for this much more complicated world so that more disorganization, more distractibility are to be expected. And that's why parents, I think, uh, you know, need to help the kid find new strategies for creating order in their world and also practice more concentration and attention paying skills you know, at a time when their, their attention is just honorably distracted in all kinds of directions. Give us an example of what that looks like. Well, it's, it's almost like, <clears throat> not exactly like occupational therapy, but it's kind of like that. What it, essentially the parent is saying is, you know, as you enter this, this larger world, you know, it's going to be harder to maintain order. Let me tell you how I maintain order in my world, and the parent shares maybe how they schedule things. And maybe they, they get with the kid and they say, let's talk about, you know, what kinds of order do you need to have tomorrow so that you can keep your world together? What do you need to remember? What do you right. need to put where? What do you need to get done when? <clears throat> and you help, you, you coach the kid in <clears throat> giving, creating more organization, self-organizational capacity. And in terms of distractibility, uh, you understand now that this kid sits down to do something, and you know their mind starts wandering after two or three minutes, and you don't you don't you don't blame the kid for that. You say, well, I understand. You know, it's harder to pay attention with so much on your mind. You know, let's try. Let's see if you can practice concentrating on this for say five minutes, and then we'll take a break. Yeah, and you're helping. You're you're teaching the kid right. attention paying and organizational capacity. Talking with Carl Pickhart, who's the author of Who Stole My Child? And speaking of taking a break, we're going to take one right here. We will be back in a minute and continue talking to Carl. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody... I'm all for it. I just wish I would have had a warning. Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and ONDCP. GTG, BRB, OMW, be there in a few. You may think that these kinds of texts are fine because of their length, and you can easily send them at a stoplight. But no, answering one text can take your attention away from the road for five seconds. And traveling at 55 miles an hour, that's enough time to travel the length of a football field. Make good decisions. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, Noise, and the Ad Council.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brown. If you're just joining us, talking with Carl Pickard, the author of Who Stole My Child? Parenting Through the Four Stages of Adolescence. Let's jump into the second stage, which was the, the separation from childhood. So that's looking at uh, the way you've characterized it as about ages 9 to 13 or so. Um, and you were talking about the disorganization and distractibility uh, and, and getting, getting them organized. Is there something more that's going on there? Oh yeah, I think at, at this point you're going to get more of a uh, more of a negative attitude because the kid is more dissatisfied. They no longer want to be, you know, treated, you know, and defined as just a little child anymore. But yeah. they don't exactly know how they do want to be treated. So there's there's that kind of dissatisfaction, boredom, and restlessness. A lot of times there's the beginning of more active and passive resistance. Active resistance in terms of arguing. Passive resistance in terms of delay. And then there is there is early beginning early experimentation, you know, t- testing to see if in fact the old childhood rules still apply to me now that I am older. Do I still have to do chores? Do I still have a bedtime? Do I still have to do homework? I mean, all of a sudden the kid comes back to see if in this new world order these old rules apply. Yeah. Well, then it, it's it's all about rights and responsibilities and believing that you should be able to have one without the other. Right, and that's why I mean, that's why a big part of parenting is always working off the choice consequence connection, because a kid needs to know that freedom is never free. It always, always comes with baggage, and the baggage of every free choice is some kind of consequence. And you know that's why you know with the good ones, parents need to point that out, and the bad ones, the kid needs to experience enough of that so maybe they learn not to do the same thing again. Wait, talk about that again, because I think you, when people hear about choices and consequences, almost always the head goes to a negative thing. If you do this, then that, and, and that's, that's your punishment. But you're talking about pointing oh, out no, choices it's, and yeah, consequences no, it's much larger the other than way. That. It's simply, you know, for example, you know, you made a choice, you know, and you waited to start, you know, say your homework this late. And now what happens is you have a shorter time between starting and the time you have to go to bed, and so now you're feeling more pressure to get it done. You know, what can you learn from that? Can you learn from that that maybe you need to start a little earlier next time so that you don't feel that kind of pressure? Well, but on the other side of that, what I was talking about is that that we need to be pointing out, you know what, you could have started later, but you chose to start early, and you finished up your thing early, and look at that. We can go to a movie now. Absolutely. There you go. I mean, that's right. Because not all consequences are negative. That's 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 a really important point. I mean, you're also pointing out the positive, you know, choices also have positive consequences like the ones you described. So what about when you get to the, the real time when adolescence starts chronologically, when we think it's starting at age 13 or so? Like It, it, it seems like there's still a lot of them are still very young and and naive, and they don't seem like teenagers yet. But what's well, going yeah, on there? That's in in phase three. Uh, well, maybe the second stage, thirteen to fifteen, would be yeah, they're when they're forming a family of friends. And the reason that's important is that most kids, I think, know that adolescence is no time to go it alone. They're feeling, you know, they're feeling awkward in terms of their place in the family, and they need a place where they can feel comfortably in the company of other people who are changing the way they are. But the problem is that, you know, these kids have just given up a lot of childhood dependencies and securities, so they're insecure that way, 
And this is the age, 13 to 15, where most kids, I think, start undergoing puberty. So now they're very, very self-conscious. They feel out of control of their bodies. And they know that there are all kinds of social consequences, you know, for acting funny and talking funny and looking funny. And they're not fun to receive. And so you get more, you know, you get more teasing and that kind of thing going on. Uh, And so that, and, and then you, then the kid also realizes that, you know, these, this, this circle of friends is, you know, it's not a free society. You have to conform to belong. And so, you know, if you want to be part of this group, you have to be like us and behave like us and believe like us and act like us. And, yeah. you know, don't do, I mean, there's all kinds of pressure. So that's why, you know, this kid at this age comes back, they've been out with their friends and they come back and all they want to do is to shut the door in their bedroom and lay down and decompress because, these are relations. Early relationships uh, are very, very complicated and very wearing for kids. You know, the the human memory constantly amazes me. I mean, I always I think yeah. about it. I think about it in terms of of women that if they could remember what it was like to give birth, that they probably would never do it again. And right. I, it, it's it's like a similar right. no, I mean it's a similar kind of a thing. As I'm listening to you describe this, and I, I've I've I have two kids who are in their 20s, and I've got a a 15 year old now, and right. I don't remember quite how bad it was and how how challenging it was to be a teenager. Well, I think it varies widely. I'm more like you. I think I don't have a lot of experiential memory of it, but I do see parents some parents who have really good recall and it's a huge advantage when when you have that because you can in fact share out of that experience and you can say well you know what i can remember back when i was your age and all of a sudden i'd wake up in the morning and the one thing i dreaded in middle school was having to look at the picture of myself in the mirror cuz i was afraid of that i would have changed some way overnight and you know and i wouldn't want to take go to school looking the way i did uh, and the kid hears that, and it, the kid says, well, gee, then, you know, I'm not the only one, you know, that this, you know, this, hap- this happened to my parent. Uh, and I can, you know, even though it doesn't make it more comfortable, at least it means, you know, that I'm not, you know, weird or out of step. It just means that this is a complicated time, and it was for my parents, too. Yeah. All right. So let's let's move on to the the next stage, the late adolescence, as you're calling, fifteen to eighteen. Yeah, uh, roughly the high sure. school years. Yeah. yeah, that's when that's when you get kids more interested in acting older, and that's where you got the you've got to have you, you really have to have the communication with parents, helping kids take a look at the risk taking that now you know starts starts developing in terms of. Doing older things, driving a car, dating, recreational substance use, partying, that kind of stuff. And uh, parents just, you know, they need to be able to help the kid slow down enough to be able to evaluate the decisions they're making when a new new opportunity for an adventure arises. And so the parent says, look, for heaven's sake, just ask yourself, you know, why would I want to do that? Are there risks involved? Are the risks worth the reward? And if things went badly, what's my backup plan? And, yeah. you know, kind of school the kid in, you know, responsible risk-taking, which is thinking before you take the risk. Right. But there's also something that, that that's going on here, too, at this particular stage especially, it seems, that 
you got to spend a lot of time listening and asking questions because some of the things that kids are dealing with, I mean, you know, the people talk about the drugs and social media, but I'm, I'm listening to my daughter talk, things that I never heard. I'm, I don't imagine that you ever heard in, in high right. school either. Things, you know, kids who are coming out as trans or gender fluid or non, right. non-binary and things like that. I mean, just it's bad enough to be thinking about dating, but it just, there, there's so much more that, that, are just beyond the vocabulary of most adults. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what you said before, which I think is really true. I think kids have to process much more information, say, than you and I did coming up. Uh, And that not only accelerates growth, it it complicates it, and it, it also complicates you and I as parents listening to this because sometimes we can get scared or we don't want to hear it. Uh, but in fact, being able to listen provides that kind of support where, you know, the kid can try to, by talking it out, they can sort it out. And we want them to be able to sort it out. And that's part of our job to help them do so. Yeah. And I think it's, it's so important still to help us, I mean, for us to help them to just to listen and right. not to preach too much. I mean, there's a, there, there's plenty of teaching that goes on, but it doesn't have to be beating it into their heads. There there are other ways to get messages across. Right, and I think it's very hard. I mean, parents have to beware. It's very hard to listen when our mind is made up. It's very hard to listen when we're scared. Uh, and so yeah. that yes, you know, yeah. we have to have we have to have the discipline. To you know, say I will. You know, I will honor you know those those feelings. But at the moment, my job. I mean, this and this is the job all the way through adolescence, but particularly as it gets towards the end, is you know how do I stay caringly and communicatively connected with our child? You know, as adolescence grows us apart, which is what it meant what it's meant to do. Yeah. And one of the major ways is in fact non-evaluative, open you know, uh, uh, listening to our empathetic, listening to our kid as they talk about whatever they want to talk about. And most important is whenever this kid wants to talk, you stop doing whatever you're doing because this kid's readiness to talk, it depends on their emotions at the moment. And if you say we'll talk later, later will not happen. Yep. Carl Pickhart is the author of Who Stole My Childhood? Parenting Through the Four Stages of Adolescence. Carl, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Hey, good talking to you, Armin. Take care, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.